Hello, 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 and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I am a casting director for CBS Lines and Amazon's upcoming Bluebeard, as well as I have to shout out the video game I worked on, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, dropped oh, wow. last week, and it got a fucking great review in the LA Times. This is like yeah. the best reviewed thing I've ever done. Um, and for those of you listening who may not realize that video games, yes, are cast uh, by casting directors. And I have to tell you that I was blown away and they take a quite a long time to uh, build. And I worked on this like a year ago. And I remember reading the scenes going, this is like some of the best writing I've ever seen. <laughs> These are some of the best characters I've ever seen. Um, and the vision was incredible. Um, and that's going to be pertinent in a in a second when I talk about writing. But I'm also honored to be a local 99 member of the Teamsters. I am a card-carrying union member, and our motto is, quoting my leader, Lindsay Doherty, fuck around and find out. That's that's our uh, motto here. But so I'm here. Uh, Dean is not here today. My thunder from down under, my wonderful Australian co-host, he's not here today. But I am here with two very special guests that I've been wanting to get on for such a long time and talk about their careers and talk about, you know, what we love to talk about on this show, which is our, you know, our obsessive love of TV and film and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I love to talk about the directing and I love to talk about the wardrobe and the wallpaper. Wallpaper is kind of my thing. I'm obsessed with wallpaper. And and talk about the writing. And there would be no favorite TV shows or films without the writing. There's no succession. There's no Happy Valley, no Friday Night Lights, no Wire, no Coda without the writing. And and But writing cannot exist without those who fund the writing. And right now there is this very dysfunctional, symbiotic relationship, incestuous relationship between um, the producers, uh, capital P producers who produce writing and the writers who write the writing. Um, so my two guests today are so dear to my heart, and I'm just going to let y'all introduce yourselves. Um, go right ahead. Teddy, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I'm Ted Sullivan. I am co-executive producer and writer on Riverdale and have been for the past four years. Uh, and before that did shows like Law and Order, Criminal Intent, Rizzolian Isles, uh, mm -hmm. Revenge, uh, <laughs> Star Trek Discovery, Supergirl. Uh, it's been a long, fun ride. So and just a few obscure shows that nobody's ever fucking heard of. Yeah. Um, and then also with me, I, should I disclose who you are to me? Otherwise, personally, I don't know. Should we? Should we? Should we say? Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, in in, in full disclosure, I am also the uh, brother-in-law of our host, <laughs> my brother, uh, Paul Sullivan, uh, who uh, edits on this show, on your podcast, uh, produces on this podcast, uh, is uh, my brother. And that's has right. Has it's, been for fifty-one years. So. He has indeed, and but also joining us today is one of the loves of my life. Who are you, Miss? Hi, I'm Liz Benjamin, and I'm a television writer producer. And I started my career in procedurals, so I started with Law and Order: Criminal Intent. <laughs> I did long stint on Bones, and I did Rizzoli and Isles. And then I made a transition to my true love and what I really do, which is character driven comedic dramas, right? Like 
That's my thing. So I have worked on shows like Dead to Me. I've worked on Man in the High Castle. I've worked on, which is not a comedy, (laughs) by the way. (laughs) Um, And I did The Flight Attendant. I've worked on Bridgerton. And I'm currently a co-EP on a show for Amazon that is a pre-greenlit production room. So it's not fully in production, but it's not a mini room. It's the one in between. And that's a new whole ball, ball game in the world of television. But um, I also develop. I have a pilot at Netflix right now. And um, I have known Lisa for years because I also was an actress. And we both went to the same um, conservatory. Mm-hmm. So that is how we met. And now our sons are best friends. That's right. <laughs> our totally nerdy weirdo sons who we love are best friends. Um So what I want to talk to you, you know, we're going to get to the kind of the bad stuff in a second, but what I want to talk to you about first, because I have this feeling that a lot of people listening view Hollywood writers kind of like Scrooge McDuck. Like you all sit around in bathtubs full of like thousand dollar bills and you turn on the spigot and gold spews out and, and Ted walks around in like a smoking jacket, smoking a cheroot. And Lizzie is like in a feather boa and stilettos and we all shop at Erewhon for our groceries or whatever. Um, But I just want to kind of talk to you just as real people before we get to the philosophy and the economy of the strike that is going on. I don't know if I mentioned there is a strike going on. Um, The Writers Guild of America has struck. But I want to just talk to you really, first of all, but why did you get into this business? You both have two such... different paths and you worked on some of the same shows, but you had very different paths. And what brought you here? What was your passion? Why did you get into this crazy business? Teddy, do you want to start? Uh, sure. I, I mean, I, to be honest, I fell in love with storytelling very, very early on. Um, my brother and I, when we were growing up living in Europe, we did not, uh, have a TV that could get signals. Uh, it could only play videotapes. Uh, and we would get these videotapes sent uh, to us from the United States, which was just HBO, just someone to put a tape in and would record for uh, six straight hours. And we we just watched whatever was on there because it was the only video entertainment that we had. And our father was also very passionate about storytelling and movies and wanted to talk about them. And they weren't something you watched passively there was something that you analyzed and thought about and he used to have a rule say three good things and three bad things about the movie and that got us thinking us very critically about storytelling uh, that it was something that people dreamed up and had a point to and then we started telling our own stories uh, we you know grew up as best friends and creative collaborators and made short films and then we saw the movie brazil and that changed my life i said oh i want to do that right and uh pursued it with kind of a single-minded passion i started a theater company in high school and wrote plays and put them on all over california and then went to usc film and studied there uh which you would think oh then you made it right uh it was a very different program back then it wasn't what it is now uh, I was the fourth graduating class, I think, of the filmic writing program. So they were really working out the kinks. And what I say is I had to unlearn four years of education to learn how to work in the in right. the world. Um, I broke in via soap opera. 
And uh, it was a great training ground. It was like being working for Roger Corman, like in Grindhouse. We did, we wrote five to six episodes a week. We shot five episodes a week. We were on 50 weeks a year. At the end of my first year as a 26 year old, I had written 56 episodes of television. So, oh my God. right fast and, and do all that. Uh, and then I left the entertainment industry after four years and I, um, did other things. I mm -hmm. drove a truck and put up drywall. I worked for my mother, uh, operating an MRI scanner at her lab. I just did a lot of just real work. And then my cousin, who was my hero, she was a writer too, Mary Ellen Sullivan, got on the phone with me and said, what are you doing? You're a writer. Go back down there. Getting back in at 36 was a, a difficult thing to do. Um, I also knew that being a TV writer in primetime was very different from being a TV writer in soap opera. Uh, in soap opera, you were just a writer. You were in a writer's room all day. You never went to set. So I started working every department to learn how production works. I was a grip and camera and boom op and did everything except hair, makeup, and truck driving. <laughs> and, um, and over time, and then I also became an editor. I built an Avid system and I learned how to edit. And then I got hired by ABC Promo. And I think it's very important to become an editor too, because it may be a much better storyteller. And finally, mm -hmm. I met with Waylon Green at Law & Order Criminal Intent. He had me pitch stories at the end of the meeting. He said, you're hired and completely changed my life. And I was lucky enough to not stop working after that. But it wasn't a direct line, but I'm actually much happier now that it wasn't a direct line. Mm -hmm. I started much later in life. I had scars and stories to tell yeah. and share, and it made me also a little less um aggressive i think and a little bit more collaborative and less hungry but more um mature mm -hmm. and so i've been very very lucky but it is it started as a childhood dream yeah. and i think that's also something that this industry capitalizes on because most people don't dream of being an accountant they dream of being doing something right. magical like storytelling or acting or a musician and that's how you can also get into a situation where you get taken advantage of, which is what we're dealing with right now. That is so important, Lizzie. I'm going to get you in a second. But Ted, you know, that what you just said, capitalizing on people's dreams. And it's not just the writer's dreams. I mean, it's the actor's dreams too. It's my dreams as a casting director. I work for free constantly, giving people my ideas for free on the hope that they will then hire me or that person who can say yes, which there's a great article out there. If you haven't read it by, you know, Eric Drysdale was pushing it around about the person who says yes, that yes. person in power who can say yes, we are all striving for that. And I don't think that a lot of civilians understand that constant pressure. And we're going to talk about more of that in a second. But Liz, well, the other thing I want to say, Ted, is, you know, graduating from USC, see um was just a dream for so many people to go to that program but there must have been such incredible pressure that oh well you're graduated you're going to be the next robert town i mean you're going to be you know that that pressure to deliver on that degree must have been extremely a lot you know it it, it I, I think it was, I don't, I think I was dumb enough to not really recognize that, but also it was just a very unrealistic program back then. Mm -hmm. It went through an evolution after I left and it became much more of 
an industry focused as opposed to um one that was promoting a false narrative it was it was taught by at that period in the very very early day we didn't even have classrooms a lot of times we had trailers with no air conditioning it was a very <laughs> different program i was in the filmic writing program and we had professors that had never been on set before right professors who had right. just written a book same like, with us lizzie right <laughs> yeah yeah. And, and that's that's doesn't prepare you for the industry at all today now that program's phenomenal and i've lectured there and i've mm -hmm. i've seen the students that come out there and i think they have more of a pressure now than maybe i recognized at the time or i was just stupid which is yeah yeah me too I, i've taught there too and i was just there the other night uh to see some of their short films it's it's a whole other whole other world elizabeth benjamin what's your story well uh, where do I begin? I'll begin at the beginning. I came to television writing from a very circuitous route. I started out in life as a modern dancer. My dream was to tell stories. I was passionate and I did it. And I had this amazing career in New York City. And the most famous person I worked with was Twyla Tharp, who, if you don't know, is a very big yes. deal. And I had the career, you know, they're hard to come by. And I was good. And I went to boarding school. So I started at 15. I went to school for high school and for college, got a degree, BFA in modern dance, moved to New York. So and North Carolina School of the Arts, motherfucker. Yes. <laughs> And I made my way there and did it. And then I got disillusioned after about eight years of the no, literally no money. My parents still paying my rent, doing everything downtown. Or, you know, I did the Joyce Theater performances there. And I toured. Mm -hmm. I went you know, to Japan and to Europe. But it was a grind. And then I had a friend who was doing musical theater. And she was like, you have got to get into musicals. You're going to make so much money. And it's so easy. So I snuck into an audition at Actors Equity. I was cast in a show that was being done at the Denver Center Theater Company, which is where the program Lisa and I went to grad school. The conservatory was associated with that company. So anyway, I did the show Carousel. And I made more a lot of money like can i just stop for a second going from being a dancer for twyla fucking tharp and doing the wizard of oz for it's like it's like being picasso and then finger painting i mean yeah. it is like it was crazy such a huge difference in artistry when you see liz dance she it's it's like it's 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 amazing anyway continue my love well it's interesting because from that that conservatory experience, I did take a job touring with the the arena show. Let's get this clear. It was an arena stage show. Um, Purina Dog Chow was our sponsor. And I did an arena show that we were five weeks at Radio City. But the reason I did that was because a choreographer named Una White was doing it. And she was the original choreographer of The Music Man. And as a dancer, I was like, that is worth it to work with a legend. And she was. And I loved her. And it was an amazing, that amazing experience. But uh -oh. back and I could not, I could not come back after that. So I decided that I was going to be the next Pina Bausch and I was mm -hmm. going to do theater dance pieces, very lofty art pieces. And so I went and 
in commercial classes for acting and scene study um, that I would get into a conservatory and get an MFA. So I would have real training. Didn't It's crazy, but I did get into a school and I did get my MFA. And from there, when I got out of school, I started writing plays. And it's interesting because as a child, my mom was a journalism major, English major, and I wrote short stories and plays, short stories and journals religiously because I had a modern dance teacher who told me, you know, write journals for when you write your memoirs. And I was like, note to self at 12, I better start writing my journals. <laughs> so I I did do writing and my mom recognized that I loved it, but I was like, I'm a dancer. But when I started writing plays, yeah, something clicked. Something in my brain felt like I was dancing again. I can't explain it. It was different than acting, which was tremendously hard for me. There's so many things you have to remember. Like my brain wasn't... Tr- I just couldn't quite get the hang of it. But with writing, it was just like I was back in a creative zone that I knew. Mm-hmm. So I started writing, taking off like like really nicely. And I had good reviews and I was flown to LA for a show called Men Behaving Badly. They wanted to meet me and I was not a sitcom writer. So I was a little freaked out, but it got me thinking about TV and it got me thinking about health insurance and ways for my parents to stop paying my rent because, mm-hmm. you know, as a playwright, you're still not making money. And I thought maybe one hour would be, I uh, asked around and there were no, like, I wanted to be like a writer's assistant or something to see if I liked it. There really was nothing, but I did end up interning for uh, an executive on order and Hill Street Blues and like very old guard. TV writer. And- Lizzie, you're breaking up for me. I don't know if you're breaking up for you, Ted. Yeah, it was breaking, it's breaking up for me too. Yeah. I don't know if you have oh, any no. if you have any windows up. It's okay. Um, I, um we can edit around it, but you were just saying so you were interning for if you can just oh, turn up. What is going on? Does that help? No. I don't know. What just is, keep, I don't- it's okay, just keep going. No. Just keep going. So you're Sorry. you're interning for Hill Street Hill Street Blues. Yeah, I interned with a man named David Black, who was a writer. And so all I did was fill out FedEx slips and update his address book. But true to his, like, I worked for him for free. And true to his word, he mentored me like nobody's business. And I listened in on every business call he had. And I read every script he wrote and scenes and saw how they changed and he gave me my first break. He gave me a script that got me into the WGA for a pilot he was working on. I got to write one of the scripts. And that got me an order camp because they needed a staff writer. And um, the showrunner of that show read my play and he read the script that I wrote that was a cop show. And it wasn't really a cop writer, but a procedural writer, but I didn't good enough job to get a staff position. So that was how I broke in. And since then, you know, I've just slowly pushed in the direction of where I started as a writer, which was comedic dramas. I, I, I know that's okay. And I, there's a reason why I want to, people to hear this journey 
right? Because they don't know this, the paths that you've had to go through, the fire that you've had to go through to get here. And I remember just a little anecdote. When Liz's, um, we were all living in New York and when Liz's episode was premiering on Law and Order, we were losing our minds. I mean, we were just, and I think you were pregnant, right? And you yeah. were writing this dark, murder, horrific, you know, script. And we're all, you know, crammed into uh, like Randy Myler and Kathy, um, what's her fuck's uh, apartment with like a million cats. And Paul and I are like, we are so allergic to cats, but we're going to stay here and watch this episode. And like your name comes up on the screen and we're like cheering. You know, I don't think civilians understand what that name on the screen means. You know, what that means to finally see yourself acknowledged. And it's not even about the money. It's just about, I'm there. It's, you can't erase that. I'm indelible. You know what I mean? And it's just so, so important. Really, it was so thrilling. And I've had, you know, when I think back to Law & Order and being such a green writer and so new to the business, my first script that you saw that we saw and watched together, there were some rules that were told to me early on when I first got the job. No night drive, one of them, and no like iconic settings. And in my first script, I wrote a chasing, a foot chase through Times Square, and I wrote a night driving scene through Fort Tyrone Park. And my boss is like, did you get the memo? <laughs> Right, but somehow made it work because because he said, "Why Times Square?" And I'm like, "Well, where are they going to go and hide out?" You know, like like I was I was naming some names in um you know upstate New York. I was like, it just doesn't sound good enough, you know. So yeah, I'm I, I, my- oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that I I'm so happy to hear Liz that you had a mentor as well because I think you know I had one at the Law and Order camp in Wayland Green. He's the one who found me and not only gave me my first job, but he's the one who taught me how to write for prime time, taught me how to write to budget, taught me how to write to a schedule, taught me how to think about a production, but also to tell the most dramatic story, to write the show that you were hired to write, and then continued to mentor me. I mean, he's still a huge role in my life, and we we continue to get together, and I tried to do the same thing that he did for me mm-hmm. people uh younger people coming up because it's if you face this industry by yourself it will crush you unless you are just a complete statistical outlier like like unless you're a john singleton or someone like that who just came out of sc just a, a house on fire and and didn't even really need the university mentors are the way that you truly, truly learn how to function and get ahead and have someone vouch for you because it's so hard to get inside the castle. Right. I really, I could not agree more. I think about my my experience and how he told me that, that, that a friend of his, the wife of a friend of his, when he was writing novels and he was a Pulitzer prize nominated, you know, fiction writer pulled him aside and said, you should be, you could work in TV and make some money. I'm under her, her wing for Hill street blues and mentored him. And he said her, her rule with him for that was you have to 
pay it forward. So when he did it for me, he said, you have to promise me that you're going to do this moving forward for someone else or other people. And I have, and I will, because in our business right now, there's no room to really learn all these nuts and bolts. They're so essential. Right. Because writing is so much more than writing. It's producing. And you have to understand all these different aspects. Right. And, and it's also like being on set and realizing we're running out of light. We're not going to have enough time to get everything the way that we originally thought of it. Or having an actor who either isn't connecting to the material, doesn't want to do the material, and having to pivot on the on the set or a director that had something else in mind or a location falls through. It's about being able to pivot under pressure and come up with solutions mm -hmm. and mentors are the ones that help you figure out how to do that. And they create the net underneath you so that you can then do the trapeze without the net. And then you have to just be a net for someone else. But this is, let's get, so let's get into it now. So this is something that is the crux of what's happening with the strike. So what uh, civilians may not understand is when Liz writes a script or Ted writes a script for an episode, he doesn't just email the script and go, okay, bye. <laughs> you know, I'm leaving now. No, you, 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 you babysit that script through the entire process. You go to set. You are a writer producer. Um, it's not a separate vertical where you are just, there's just writers and then they hand it off to producers like a baton and it gets produced. Can you, I mean, Ted was already talking about that, but, but you go through that process and at the same time, you, in the before times anyway, you would be in a writer's room on a show. And while you are writing your script, that is going to be one episode, you're also giving notes to everybody else's script. It's a team. You're delivering this huge, gigantic fucking ship, you know, which is the show that is going to sail for 22 episodes. And it's got to be all it can't be just compartmentalized. You know, it's a huge family. It's a huge production that you do together. Um, so how can you just sort of talk about how things have changed from when you were mentored and when you came up in the business to sort of what is happening now? And, and before you get into this, you can formulate your thoughts. So for me as a casting director, and I was very blessed that I got put, got onto a huge show that was a huge machine, right? That, that I would start my job in July, right after July 4th, we would come back to work, go into production and we would have 22 episodes. And we were, so I knew that I had a job that was putting food on the table, literally putting food on the table, literally providing the insurance for my children and my husband. Um, and I would work from July until like April. And then I knew, um, because our show was always picked up, um, that I would have, you know, a couple months, I could do a film, I could do a video game, and then I would come back. Um, and that was the closest to normal life that most people in this fucked up, crazy, idiosyncratic, unstable industry gets. And I was very, very grateful for that. Um, and I know, I remember the season that we got cut from 22 episodes to 20 and it was like, what? what what's going on you know it was very very stressful but still um so and then and then and that was a network show it was a billion dollar asset um and then with when streaming came along when netflix came along and i was just looking this up you know today you know their first you know sort of huge hits were house of cards and orange is the new black and those were 13 episodes which is you know obviously 
half as much time to be working. Um, and so when you're a casting director, that's, that means you have to be like, Oh God, you know, okay, I got to get something else. I got to start, you know, getting another job much, much more quickly. So can you, from your point of view, what was your experience? Ed, I mean, I, sure. sure. I mean, the industry doesn't look the same at all from when I first came in. I mean, when I first came in, uh, by the time by my third show, I was on Revenge, and someone left our show uh, to go do a basic cable show that only had like ten episodes a season. We were like laughing at him, and of course, that show was Mad Men. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we started thinking, well, maybe network TV is changing, or maybe it's going to go away. And then basic cable, that those shorter orders became the thing. The real issue at play here, once streaming came in, is that brought in Silicon Valley. And Silicon Valley uh, started to implement the Silicon Valley method of treating workers and and working them and taking away guaranteed pay, union busting, all of those types of things in order to generate as much material for them at, at the least amount of work, at uh, least amount of money as possible. Uh, but why, Ted, do they only want to do a shortened season? What is the financial benefit to that? Th- they're into just creating content, new content. So they need new eyeballs. So, so short want- attention span. Just short like- attention span. And that's why you also see a lot of times like Netflix started canceling successful shows after two seasons. Because what they found is the longer the run, the less likely someone was going to jump in. If they see, oh, well, it's five seasons and they convince people to binge. Well, I don't want to watch. I don't want to have to take on that much. There's a new show that's coming on that's you know, eight to 10 episodes, I'll just jump onto that one. So they just would start cutting shows. But that doesn't make any sense because why then is Criminal Minds the number fucking one show on Netflix? But so is NCIS. So like all all of those shows are giant juggernauts, but these people are the same business people (laughs) that spend hundreds of millions of dollars on one show and 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 it no one watches it and it bombs and then they just go on and do it again with something else they i was very very much in the wrong leading up to this uh strike thinking that because they now answer to shareholders because all these companies are now publicly traded mass conglomerate companies i thought well they're obviously not going to allow a strike to happen because that's a bad business move they've announced all these movies all these tv shows all these streaming shows, this is going to disrupt the platform. But of, these are also the same people that spend hundreds of millions of dollars and waste it and just burn through it. I've seen it. I worked on Star Trek. I see what they do. And of course, they cut their nose off to spite their face because the whole point is not to give any quarter when it comes to worker rights. Mm-hmm. Don't. I mean, can I just jump in? Yeah, this, of course. Amazon is a company that doesn't give a shit that their employees wear diapers when they're working in the warehouses, right? Right. Exactly. I mean, that's- I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that one of the Apple factories has a net outside the windows so they don't, to catch the workers that jump. I've seen the nets myself in China. I've seen them. In China. So so they don't care. And and the, the difference too with these, these, um, is, is that they think of us as just workers who provide a service, but we are not 
We are content creators. We create the stories. We create the content. You know, you wouldn't, it's, it's artistry and it's not lofty or highfalutin to say that. It's a really hard job. You can't just walk in and be like, I'm going to make a show. It takes a lot, a lot of work and a lot of deep digging. I'm working on a show right now that is so character driven that the discussions, the nuanced discussions about character motivation are so deep and, and naughty and, you know, you know, K N O T T Y, you know, very entangled and stuff, but you kind of got to get in there in order to understand how a character is. Motivations are going to progress them through the season. And you can't, it's like in the olden days, making a show like Mannix or, you know, the very old cookie cutter formulas, that's plotting. You could do that very quickly. And it didn't require the, we're making feature film quality right now. Mm -hmm. As far as this short order too, you know, I noticed it because I've been working in streaming for a long time now. I noticed it back on 13 Reasons Why. Mm -hmm. That might have been my first Netflix show. And I noticed some things that were really like different, where all of a sudden, after 20 weeks, the majority of the room was gone. And it was just me and the showrunner and then the co-EP. That I was a co-EP, but she was a co-EP who was running the room. And we had a lot of work left and there was nobody to do it. I was pulling in the script coordinator who was like, this isn't, I'm not. And I said, no, you're a writer. I need you to help me bounce story. I have to re-break this episode. I could not believe it. And they weren't writers go to set. That was the beginning of that. And I thought, what is happening? What is happening? Like the whole model seemed to change. And it's only um, but are we answering your question? No, yeah, you're you are, you are, you are. I want to know the nutty, the nitty-gritty and what it's been like for you. I, know well, I, think, I think what Liz also is hitting on is what the writers' rooms are dealing with, and not just the writers' rooms, but all of the unions that work in this industry are the same issues that all workers across every industry are facing right now. So that when you have an emphasis on responding to shareholders and keeping shareholders happy, and then executives just paying them, I mean, you have David Zaslov who pays himself $250 million and then cuts thousands of workers at Warner Brothers and gets rewarded for that. That I don't know how you that these are the same issues that workers in factories are dealing with, that nurses are dealing with, that teachers like my brother are dealing with. These are all people are being stretched to a limit to service a corporate shareholder as opposed for. Uh, and they're making extreme. Yeah, they're making money hand over fist. Just that's hand- well- announced today that Warner Brothers Discovery had made a profit of 50 million in the first quarter of 2023. And that the optics of that are not good because he's saying we're making a profit and yet we are not paying our workers and, okay. and what they're doing. Right? 
Well, this is something that Mike Shore was just saying. I was just listening to something else. Uh, Mike Shore, who was, you know, the creator you know, or, or Parks and Rec and worked on The Office and, and he's, he's brilliant. But he was saying, like, on the one hand, you know, there is this narrative out there that streaming is tanking, right? They were all in a race to beat Netflix and Disney Plus and, and Paramount Plus and My Pussy Plus or whatever, you know, it's like they're all trying to be these streamers and they're failing. They're not getting their, you know, return on investment. Yet at the same time, in the same conversation, they're telling their investors, we're doing great. You know, we're making all this money. So which is it? And well, why, you know, why can't you just pay? You know, these the writers are not asking for the fucking moon. They're asking to make their insurance. Yes. And basically what it's coming down to is what we're asking for is 1% of their profits. That's literally all we're asking for. And the way that you know, Chris Kaiser, who is just a tremendous leader in our guild uh, and fearless and inspiring and a terrific, terrific person who has all the facts at his fingertips, points out that someone like David Zaslov at Warner Brothers gave himself $202 million in stock options. That means he believes in the viability of the company, the future of the company, and the profitability of the company. And there's only one group of people that he has to be 100% honest with, and that's the shareholders. Otherwise, the SEC and the FCC come in and start hammering him. So he, they lie to us and say we're not profitable, but to their shareholders and to themselves in their own stock options, they have to be honest. And so that's who we use, that's what we use as our metric, which is to say, you're being honest to your shareholders by law. You don't have to be honest to us by law, and you're lying to us. So that's how we know they're lying. And no and I, single person is worth $250 million a year, in my opinion. No. And I think what's important also to to note is that you know the corporate rampant and say that again lizzie we lost you say it, the corporate what corporate greed is rampant right it's just run amok it's crazy and but but another thing that i think is really important to acknowledge is that the netflixes the amazons the apples these new streamers have brought in a lot of work, right? Over the years, they've created new jobs. Mm -hmm. But we all bought into it thinking this is an amazing thing. Like I, I've done, I think, six Netflix shows. Um, but I didn't realize what I was signing up for. It's like making a deal with the devil, right? Like I didn't realize that I was undercutting myself or, or, that, that things were going to change like this. I was really seduced by the quality of the work that I was getting to do. I mean, Dead to Me is the best show I've ever worked on. It was amazing. So was Flight of I love these shows, you know? And and so it's a trade-off. You're like, oh, I'm going to take lots of money to work on a great show. What? That's and, that and, in the equation. And, and just to, so that people who maybe don't know some of the nuts and bolts of it, of what we're dealing with. So let's say you sign on to do an eight episode show for Netflix or HBO Max, or I guess it's Max now or whatever they're going to. So you do eight episodes and for people like you, you get paid for the episode. So that's fewer amount of episodes. It should take a shorter amount of time to do it. But what we're finding is that they take forever to come back with notes Productions go on forever. The writer's room gets released, save for, as Liz said, 
you know, one or two people at the top who then have to finish all the work, finish post-production. And those writers who were released from the room are now in first position on a show that hasn't come out yet and that they will not be told if they're released from the show or if there's a second season till after post-production is done and after the show is dropped on the platform. So those people who you make eight episodes, you now could wait 14 to 18 months before you can work again because you're held Mm. first position. So what seems like a good amount of money for eight episodes, you suddenly have to amortize out for 18 months. You're barely able to make a living. And And that's untenable. But, you know, they're not even paying per episode anymore. They're paying guild minimums. So they're paying you weekly salary with no producer fees because they're doing these mini rooms. It used to be that if I'm a co-executive producer, I'm hired, I get writer fees until we go into production. Then I get producer fees on top of my writer fees because I'm doing two jobs, right? That's part of the the MBA, part of our contract. Now they're paying showrunners scale. They're not paying for showrunners to go to the edit which is part of the writing process. It's the fourth draft. Everyone knows that. They're not paying for writers to go to set, which is part of their producing duties. They're literally just paying a weekly salary for 20 weeks, and then it's bye-bye. And they're also, I've heard stories of comedies, half-hour comedies that are asked to to do a 10-week room and to deliver like. 10 scripts, eight scripts in 10 weeks. That is absolutely impossible. For any type of quality. And, it, and yeah. it's it's absolutely garbage. And then the other thing that Liz is touching on here too, is they're shooting themselves in the foot because I've dealt with people on staffs that are at co-producer level or producer who have never been on a set. So what that means is you're denying young writers from learning how to become effective producers and ultimately showrunners. So at that point, you don't even know how to run a show. You don't know how to act on a set. You don't know how to deliver a polished product or a good product. You don't know any of the skill sets. So they are disrupting the flow of the education of how you take a junior writer, like a staff writer, and how you groom them so that they ultimately become a co-EP, an EP, and then a showrunner. That's part of what the industry was supposed to do. And then the other thing that they're doing is they're deleting shows before they trigger residual payments. And they won't even open the books there. So like you'll see shows disappear on various platforms. Well, that's so they don't have to pay residuals. We made a deal very early on to say that part of what we're abdicating or putting off our, our payments up front is for the residuals on the back end. That's because they're still generating work money from our work. Right. And when they change oh, that paradigm, then we struggle or literally have to take second jobs or third jobs, just like everyone else in every other industry. And they Can make I- it seem like that we're just rich writers, like you said, sitting around like Scrooge McDuck. And it's literally not that way anymore. They don't just take them off the platform. I don't know if all of you have noticed. For me, it feels like recently it's it's rampant is they remove a show from like the platform that it was on. Then they move it to a secondary platform. Mm-hmm. 
and they charge for it. So yeah. to watch and there are ads that. on those other platforms. And for Entourage, you have to pay <laughs> to see it, or they just remove these things. So wait, wait, how how is that being paid? How are those residuals? And residuals are built into a writer's, like you were saying, a writer's salary to get them through the times that they are not employed. Not everyone's going to go from job to job, and it, and it's very hard in the eight episode model to to sustain long, you know, because you're working for five months, and then there may be a cycle where shows aren't staffing when you finish that one, and then you have to wait a few months. So where, how are you living? Yeah, and it's yeah. not it's not even the David Zaslavs that I mean, you know, he's at the you know those executives are the creme of the creme making you know all these millions, but there are plenty of other executives making lots and lots of money who, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to me, the budgeting. And I, I just remember, you know, talking to one of my producers and, and all I wanted to do is I wanted to bring in some deaf actors to play this one role. You know, I just thought it would be just a great opportunity. It wasn't a role that was written for a deaf actor, but I just thought this would be a great role. And he was just shaking his head at me. He's like, mm, you know, we can't afford the interpreter, you know? And I'm like, motherfucker, you see that suit that the series regular is wearing? That's a fucking Armani suit. You could pay 10 <laughs> interpreters to be on set, you know? So it, it's just, it's just kind of staggering to me. And, and it's, he didn't mean any harm by that. He was definitely trying to protect his line items, you know, but it's just, what, are, what are we doing? What, well, what, what are we doing here? It, it really is, you know, corporate America taking over. <laughs> what used to be studio a studio system that was always show business. It was always yeah, of course. art, but the show part was important. There was a time you could look at a one frame of a movie and go, that's a Warner Brothers movie, that's an MGM movie, that's a Paramount movie because they had identities and they wanted to, they knew they were in the business of telling stories. If you're just in the business of creating content that is just passively absorbed on what Netflix is now called secondary screens. Like they're into creating content that is for second screens, meaning it's playing in the background while you're Googling. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's someone that, that doesn't eat. That's why you get notes from executives that have no idea what story is, or have no idea how yeah. production is made. Sometimes you can wait weeks to get notes back and you're like, that's not how we function, guys. We got to get this show made. Mm -hmm. You can't take two weeks to come back with notes on us. But they don't know that because they don't care. And they're not in the business of telling stories. Yeah, they don't have the experience. And, you know, but but as we've seen, I think, throughout history in the entertainment industry, you know, there is an evolution. I mean, talkies killed the silent era, right? There, it was over. And there was a there was a death to so many people when that happened, right? Like the, that, that was a seismic shift in the, the entertainment industry. But what we're seeing here, there are changes, right? In terms of our technology mm -hmm. and the tech and all that stuff. But it's, it's really a, a labor issue right now. There's so much free work for mm -hmm. development. That's mm -hmm. another um, thing that we are really coming to the table and saying, you know, enough is enough. Like I worked a year and a half on a pilot. It did not sell. And that is a year and a half of my life. I don't get back. I didn't make a cent. 
I worked my butt off and the executives I worked with, and there were many producers on this project. I'm sure they were getting salaried payment and I wasn't. And that that's any other business. You ask a doctor to work for free for a year and a half on a, on a new drug trial. They'd be like for free. No. Right. Right. And I think, I think for that reason, you're seeing a very different um, feeling in the industry where, you know, we, never before have we had all of the unions standing together. Uh, we we had a, a union meeting. We had the Directors Guild there. We had SAG after there. Uh, we had IOPS there. We had the Laborers uh, Union there. Teamsters, we had Teamsters the there. Teamsters, the Plasters, the Cement Masons, Local Three Ninety Nine. They were all there because our contract is up first. Mm-hmm. They know that we're paving the way for them, and that they're going to have the exact. Same fight. Same fight. It is. This is a labor issue across the board. And we're not asking to say, go back to only 22 episodes. Right, right. That's not, we, as Liz said, the industry always evolves and always changes and technology always changes. That's also why we only make three-year deals. When I first joined the guild, I didn't understand. I was like, why are we doing this every three years? Why don't we just do a 10-year deal? Well, we didn't do a deal in 2020 because of COVID. We just now we're six years behind. There was no streaming six years ago. None of that existed. So they're capitalizing on the fact that we don't have anything in our in our deal to cover any of this. And that's why they're pushing everything there because that's where they maximize their profits. They only go where there's money. They're all going to this model because they're making a ton of money. What we're asking for is just a very small portion, 1%. 1%. Right. That is not, and that's why they will not share their data. They won't share the algorithms or the tech. And Netflix is leading the charge on that, and they don't want people to know what they're making. I love a show like Jenny and Georgia. I was talking to a producer that I know about that show, and she was saying to me, "It's one of the top viewed shows on the Netflix platform. It looks like shit. They pay everybody like shit." But who knows what they're making off that? Now, I don't know how profit is made off a streaming show. I really don't. But th- apparently, there is profit to be made off these shows, but it's not trickling back to the production. You don't see the money. You used to, when you, in first season, your sets were a little, you know, and you had some guest star. And then, boy, if you were a hit, you got an influx of cash to make that show look better. It all got spread around back into the production and the production, you saw the difference and you can go back and look at old shows and see that, you know, um, it's, it's just a really unsettling time. Yeah. And exactly right. And like, I mean, if you think about it, we have a lot of data that, the, that our guild has been putting together and we have a very strong, very, it, it is a great guild. I'm I'm very proud of our union. Ten years ago, 33% of TV writers were paid minimum. It's now b- about 50%. I just, where's my piece of paper? Uh, I have written that down. Ten years ago, 33% of TV writers were paid minimum. That number is now half. Thank you, Ted. That was one of my talking points. It's insane. So, yeah. and, so that's and, a bad and, thing, everybody. That's a yeah, bad and, thing. When you're, it's, and you accounting know. for inflation, screen uh, for writer pay has declined 14% in just 
five years. And that's when streamers really took over. Right. So right, th right. there is a direct correlation to our pay there and to how they're treating writers. I mean, yes, there were, there's always going to be the person that has the $500 million overall deal or the actor that gets paid 60 million, but also Keep in mind when you hear those actors get 60 million for a movie, that means everyone else there is working for scale as an actor. And that's oh, yeah. that's I, brutal on their side too. And it's brutal for directors. It's brutal for everyone. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I think another important um thing to really think about is that you know, people think, oh, writers make so much money, they're just greedy, they just want more. That's not true. We're working. At long, long, longer hours for less pay. And we all have to give percentages of our income to our managers or agents or lawyers who are doing our contracts. It's not like you're bringing home your net at all. You're losing 5, 10, 15%, some people 25% of their income out the door because they've got a lawyer, a manager, an agent, a business manager, you know. Just right. to explain that, that 5% goes to lawyer, 10% goes to manager, and 10% goes to agent. That's off the top. That's gross. <laughs> so you're paying, and then take taxes out of that. You're really looking at a much, much smaller slice. And the studios and the corporations love to give the gross number without taking, with to try right. to weaken our stance. But as as Liz said, if you and especially if you if you look at how many weeks you're supposed to work on a show and how many weeks you end up working on a show, you just end up making minimum. And 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 I do feel like this probably sounds like privileged people talking, but do people understand that a writer's job does not stop when you leave the office? You're I'm on call. You're on calls twenty four. Absolutely. 24-7, working with showrunners on scripts. You never stop. You start, maybe the room starts at 10 o'clock and maybe the room ends at six. But if you've got a script due, you're up till one, two o'clock in the morning because you've got writing duties that have to be fulfilled to keep the, sh the train moving. Because once a show goes into production, the train leaves the station, You everybody's got to work extra hard. So you're working, I'm usually working 12-hour days. I mean, if that, if not more. And I feel like I am constantly on call for even the younger writers. I'm like, call me if you have a problem or you need help on that script or this or that. Right. So, you know, you have to look at the pay in, um, I guess, how it relates to the hours that are being put into a job. There's also there's also one other issue too that that is you know so our pay has gone down and they and you know you mentioned um Lisa earlier like oh well they'll they'll say that we're not making any money or anything like that well the reality is they're spending more and more on streaming every year in 2019 they spent 5 billion dollars on streaming content in 2022 it was 14 billion dollars and in 2023 it's going to be 19 billion dollars so where where, where is that? spending the money yeah. is on writers and the, and the laborers who make the work that they're spending money that they claim that they don't have so clearly they have the money right. they just don't want right. to share them. and it goes right back to the beginning of this conversation they're trading on the backs of your dreams Mm -hmm. Because they know that you will do it. 
you will write that. If there's a glimmer that it can get greenlit, if somebody just shows you some excitement about your idea, because we're hungry to be creators and to be collaborators. But I'm really glad that what you said, you know, we're not in the buggy whip making business here. We don't need to just perpetuate something that doesn't need to exist. You know, we do want to evolve. Uh, we do want to become, uh, you know, better. Since the pandemic, my job has changed tremendously. You know, I don't have an assistant anymore. I don't have an associate. I work from home. I employ all kinds of different things and we all have to change and um you know evolve but you know what is happening now is not right they're trying to reinvent the wheel with a square you know they're not really <laughs> um but what i want to as we wrap up what i want to talk about is so so we've known that this strike was coming for quite a long time you know if for for civilians it may seem like oh my gosh it's just blowing up the media but we, but we've known for months i mean ted you know talked about it at christmas time when we were all together that it was coming and so there's a certain anticipation and tension when that's coming and um you're scared, but you know it's coming. And then it happens. And then it's here. And there's a huge rush of adrenaline. Okay, it's here. And we're rallying and we're and we're picketing. And there's a lot of energy and a lot of support. So what happens when that dies down? When you're when you're really dug in and you're in it for the long haul, how do you keep going? <laughs> it's uh, not easy. Yeah, it's not yeah, easy. It, I talked to Waylon Green yesterday. Uh, he's been through a lot of these strikes, mm -hmm. uh, all the modern strikes. Uh, and as he said to me, the first 30 days are going to be exciting mm -hmm. and there's going to be a lot of bonding. And then by day 45, it's going to get hard. And by day 70, there people may turn on each other a bit and you just have to work really hard to push through that and that acknowledge that there are going to be down days and there are going to be days of despair. And that our guild has created um, a, a, a strike fund to help people in financial trouble where you can get an interest-free loan from them. Uh, we are a union and we're a union and a union is made up of members and the members have to look out for each other. And a lot of the stuff we're fighting for aren't really going to help the co-EPs and above in a tremendous way. What we're fighting for or for the younger writers who are coming up and to try to preserve an industry where they can actually make a living, where it's not a gig economy, which is what they're trying to turn it into. And so I think it's going to be a struggle and it's not, there are no easy answers. My favorite movie of all time is a movie called Mate One. And I really push everyone to watch that movie because it reminds you that these things don't come easy. And you don't always have to like everyone in your union, but you're in a union together and you have to hold each other up. And I think it's also going to help a lot that the other unions are with us. Yeah. The very fact that I was online this morning at 6 a.m. to stop Teamsters from going on to a studio mm. and they turned around because they knew like they're with us. That's great. And th those types of things will help us, I think, in the dark days. I agree. I mean, I really think that, you know, as far as the longevity of support and, you know, it's going to take tremendous perseverance. Mm -hmm. You know, I was in the first strike. Uh, the, my first strike was 2007 and there was fatigue. You, mm -hmm. you know, get tired, but I think we have some things in our favor that are going to keep us going. The fact that the DGA and SAG are going into negotiations, that has never that hasn't happened. The timing hasn't happened like this. 
So I do think that, you know, we have to be prepared for strike fatigue. And I think that that's, you know, a very, very real thing. But I think there's so much anger and frustration and people who want to work. You know, like my show was just the, the Amazon show I was on. So good. The room was amazing. We were just finally, everything had gelled and we had really figured, like it's a new show. There's no pilot shot. We had finally figured out like, oh, this is the right, these are the right ingredients. So we were breaking stories quicker and we were real, like, and, and it just grinds to a halt. Yeah. Like, yeah. And we're also going to be dealing with one other thing that is very frustrating. That is a, uh, that is a result of all of these mergers and a lot of mergers that should never have happened. The meet the comp, the studios are now part of the media outlets, like the news <laughs> right. and the right. newspapers. So we're dealing with a narrative that one, a lot of lies are being printed and that there's mouthpieces for the studio while we're not talking and leaking to the press. Right. And, and even in the way that they cover it, there was an article where the most liberal writer, progressive writer, can write an article about the importance of residuals. And the headline was by clearly a mouthpiece for the studio. The headline was Writers Want to Get Paid for Nothing. That wasn't the point right. of the article. The point of the article was the importance of residuals for previous work. Right. But all people are going to see is that headline. So it, it's all carefully calculated. That is going to be another thing that we're going to have to push very, very hard against. I mean, do you really think Fox? And Fox News are going to show our fight on in a positive light? Of course not. But neither is NBC, neither is the New York Times, neither is the LA Times, because they are all part of these massive conglomerates. Well, they need a headline. That's the thing. Yeah. But it can't it can't get down to basically who's going to starve first, right? Is the material going to dry up or are the writers going to need to eat? It's going to take other people to come to the table and negotiate and really say, come on. Let's let's get back to work. You know, I also think Liz is right. I think the fact that the DJ has not made a deal before us, which they tend to do, that they've waited for us. And now they for the first time ever have said they may have to strike, which they really they struck for three hours. (laughs) Yeah, that's a huge, huge. uh, That's a huge change of events. I was not certain that was going to happen. The fact that it did. I mean, if the directors walk off, I think this is over in 24 hours. after. Wow. Well, I think everything starts to shut down in a way that you can't, you can't, these, these streamers and these networks studios can't say, oh, we have content to air, you know, that, that goes away. And already since this strike started, we're what, four days in, we started Mm -hmm. Tuesday. There's a number of productions that have shut down. Yeah. They cannot, they can't go forward. Hacks. (laughs) Yeah. And think about this. Um, uh, Abbott Elementary's first day in the writer's room was May 1st, the day before the strike. That is a show that is lightning in a bottle, a critical and and uh, a public hit. Mm-hmm. It's about something. It's 22 episodes, and they just shot themselves in the foot with that lightning in a bottle show that, that, that was ready to come out, and now they're disrupting that entire season. You it's know what? Um, I want to add something before we go, because I think it's important. I had this thought that one of the ways to make the business model new and sustainable, because I think historically in this business, 
it's adapting to the change that has those people who have who adapted historically to change their careers flourished right and those people who held on to something from the past didn't like when talkies came if you still wanted to make silent movies only if you were charlie chaplin were you going to do that right he's the only one that was still making silent films moving forward right but these short orders and 20-week rooms, if they ordered a two-season order of a good show, like a like say, you know, what's a, what's a model like for Dead to Me, if it had been given two back-to-back season orders, we would have just done, we would have just stayed working for 40 weeks and rolled over into the next season. And then there would be no gap in the airing. They could choose when to air it maybe a month, maybe two months, but not a year and a half later airing a show. And I think that it's very hard to do that with a pilot, but with existing shows that have proven their success. Yeah, they know the audience. They know the marketing already. They know they know all of that they data. They should just be ordering two seasons of stuff. Yeah, And yeah. it would change a lot of our, it would change financially and create a different uh, model. It's also smarter for them. I mean, it, it, it just, it, it's, it's just smart business. The problem is we're dealing with people that have not been smart with their business other than, you know, they, they, they pay themselves very, very well. Well, I want to wrap it up here. There's so much we could talk about. And I, I want know. to thank I want to thank you both because it is not without risk that you are speaking out, to be honest with you. You know, I mean, you've got previous employers and you have hopefully future employers that you want to work for and you want to maintain those bridges, but it it the situation makes it really hard. It really pits people against each other who who really just want to be working and 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 flourishing and, and, and I don't I'm sorry, so sorry. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, you know, I have such good relationships with the executives that I work with mm-hmm. at these places. Incredible, strong, wonderful relationships. I don't fault them. It's no. the board of directors. It's it's up in Silicon Valley that these decisions are being made. They're not making them. They just work for them, right? The same, you know, and I think that we also have to like check our anger. Like I'm not. I'm frustrated and I love working on these shows. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's like an addicting passion to do these jobs. And it's I your dream. It's your dream come true. My dream. And I don't want it to stop. And I want to keep continuing. I love creating entertainment. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's just a wonderful job to be able to, to bring that into people's lives, to tell stories. So, you know, I hope yeah. that, um, yeah, I just don't want any ill. I feel like, is there going to be a backlash for us for speaking out? That would be, to me, very surprising. We're just like foot soldiers in this. And you're telling the truth. You're telling. You're being transparent about what what it really is. You know. Yeah, I, and I agree with Liz. I, I I'm I never even considered that because I I don't have a negative relationship with most of the executives that I work with either. I I this is. I do this because I was a boy who dreamed of telling stories and connecting with people. And then when you are making an episode of TV, you're on a set with a crew and a cast and a director that you feel a total, you've created a a found family. Mm -hmm. And the best part is 
when you tell a story that has a beginning, middle, and end and moves someone, you're making connections with people all across the world. Mm -hmm. And I've done Star Trek conventions and Comic-Con, and you have people come up to you and they remember a, an episode that you wrote. They remember it better than what you, than you do when you made it. And it, because it <laughs> something to them, it meant it, it moved them and it changed them. And that's, that's why we do this. Yes. We want to get paid for our work, but, but it's, it's because we love this. That's yeah. right. That's right. So we'll let that be the last word. I love you all. I love you both so much. And we're all real people, right? Lizzie's got two kids and cats and dogs. Ted's a cat daddy. I'm a mommy. <laughs> we are all just human people trying to do our jobs just like anybody else. And I want to thank you all for being here. And uh, you know what? In the words of my union, Union Strong, fuck around and find out, people. Fuck <laughs> around and find out. Thank, thank you for you. listening. Thank you.